Well, thank you for this opportunity. We'll be reading in God's Word uh, three different portions. Uh, first is in Genesis uh, chapter 50, uh, the final verses of the book. We'll be reading from verses uh, 15 on to, to verse 26. It's found on page 59 in the Pew Bible. Uh, I'll be reading from the ESV. It may be a little bit different than the Pew Bible, uh, but it shouldn't be a problem. Let's hear God's word. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph bade the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And then turning over in the New Testament to the book of Romans, uh, chapter 5. Page 1298 in the Pew Bible. Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, 
We've now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we're enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. And then turning over to Ephesians chapter 2. On page 1343 in the Pew Bible. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. I trust you noticed the, the sermon title. Uh, it says, uh, A Two-Word Summary of the Bible. Now, if you were to come up with a two-word summary of the Bible, uh, what would it be? There are a number of uh, candidates. Uh, we could think of Jesus Christ, and uh, that, of course, uh, tells who the main person is. That the whole story revolves around Jesus Christ. But you might be hesitant to do that because, you know, in society, unfortunately, the name of Christ is used as a swear word and is taken in vain by many. Another is what you see at sporting events where they put Jesus saves. So it tells us who and the what he did. And pointing to salvation. And so that would be a good two-word summary. But I'd want to make it maybe a three-word summary because nowadays where all roads lead to God, we want to say only Jesus saves. Um, and maybe even put in only the Lord Jesus saves. You might be thinking about scripture, and you know that the shortest verse in the scripture is just two words. Jesus wept. Again, pointing us to the Savior, 
and then pointing us really to his heart. What is he like? What's his heart like? And those would all be good two-word summaries. But let me suggest a different one. But God. But God. And in fact, I'd ask the children to, to count up the number of times I say, but God, in this sermon. That's the third time. So, you know, every time I say, but God, that's the fourth time, just try to check it down. And from now on, when I say, but God, I won't tell you which one it is. You'll just have to listen and kind of uh, come up with it. And, and I'd like to hear, maybe after the ser- service, and standing in the back, uh, how many you came up with? But I love it when I come in scripture and I come across that phrase, but God. In the ESV, it's used 43 times. Uh, the first time is in Genesis 8, 1. But God remembered Noah. And we'll talk about what that means in a little bit. But each time you come across that phrase, but God, it's saying something very significant is going on. And so the first point is that the phrase, but God, in Scripture is used for an interruption of the normal activities, normal processes. Something unusual is taking place. It's God intervening in the natural pattern. And he does so in two ways, and we'll look at both of them. One is to interrupt what's going on for the good of his people. Often bringing good out of evil. And the second way that is used of God interrupting or disrupting the lives of sinners who seem to be going along in their sin and be contented and happy in it, and then God intervenes and makes their lives miserable. They experience the judgment. So in the first category, but God is used of God intervening on behalf of his people for their good. And we already saw in, in Genesis 8:1. But God, but God remembered Noah and his family. What does that mean? You know, God's not like us that, that forget. God doesn't forget. So what does he What does the scripture mean when he says, but God remembered Noah? Had he somehow forgotten that all of mankind was in this one ark? The crown of his creation was this floating around in this flooded world? He was off doing something else? No, it's saying that God intervenes. What would it have meant if God hadn't intervened? If he hadn't had the the floodwaters recede, well, you would have had these animals and eight people floating around in an ark. And they had some food and some things to feed the animals, but eventually that would run out. Now, Noah and his family could eat the animals for a while, but eventually that runs out too. Noah would have been in tough shape, except for that but God. God remembered him, 
God causes those floodwaters to recede. And he and his family were spared and they were able to go forth and repopulate the earth. We came across that same phrase in Genesis 50. Joseph talks about that. As his brothers come to him, afraid that he's going to take revenge now that their father has died. He says, you meant it for evil. They wanted to get rid of him. First they were going to kill him, but then they sold him. And that was the end of it. Or so they thought. They were meaning harm against their brother. And not only does he become a slave, but he ends up in prison. The lowest possible position. A place without hope, except for God. But God brought this about. You meant it for evil, but God, he tells his brothers, meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And God worked in remarkable ways, taking this lowly slave in the prison and making him the second most important person in Egypt. That phrase, but God, occurs four verses later. In verse 24, jo- Joseph is now looking to the future. He's going to die. His whole generation is going to ju- die. And so Joseph says, I'm about to die. And the one who's been your benefactor, who's cared for you. But God, you know, I'm going to be off the scene. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. God was going to do something remarkable. And it truly was. Because if you look at Moses and the ten plagues and the people leaving and you have millions of people leave one country and they go go forth with gold and silver... How remarkable is that? Has that ever occurred in human history? A similar usage is is found in the New Testament. Go to Philippians 2.27. Paul speaking about his fellow worker, Epaphroditus. And he writes to, to the Philippians, Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God. But God had mercy on him and he had mercy on me and raised him back to life. The natural pattern was that this illness would lead to his death. But God intervened. And God is still intervening. Think of the death row inmate on the federal death row. who is sentenced to life in prison. And as he's there, and doesn't know, you know, what can he do? Well, he and another prisoner commit murder. And he ends up on death row. And he's cut off from everything. 
except God reaches to him in that lowliest of conditions and he becomes a believer. Think of a pastor who was up in Canada that had a, was involved in a plane crash down in the woods and it hit the one tree that was the right size not to snap the plane in two but just to gently bring it to the ground and he and all board lived and every time a person becomes a believer God is intervening in the spiritual blindness and giving life saying from Psalm 49 verse 15 says but God it's going and talking about the rich and how they want to give their names so that they will remember. You know, how many plantations from 2,500 years ago we still know the names of? They're all forgotten. They can't redeem their souls. They can't buy their way out of hell. Talking about the hopelessness. And then in verse Fifteen, it says, but God will redeem me. God is the one who does it. Well, second, we see here that, but God is also used of God's intervention in lives of the wicked, of the unrighteous, to judge them. The classic example is a parable of rich fool in, in Luke 12. You know, that Rich man reasons himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. Have you met people around you? I'm going to retire at 45. I'll be able to save up so I can relax. I can go on trips around the world for the rest of my life. The next verse says, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And how many made plans of what they're going to do? And suddenly COVID comes along. And those plans are turned upside down. That lifetime of eat, drink, and be merry suddenly disappears. Found several other places in scripture. Uh, Psalm 52, it's speaking about the deceitful tongue and, and words that devour. We might expect uh, such a one that would go on unabated, unchecked. But in verse 5, we have that, but God. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. God is going to disrupt your life. 
if your tongue is bent on destruction, you may think everything's going to go well. It won't. And similarly in Psalm 68, 21, but God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The wicked could easily think that it's going to be well with them. They're not going to be plagued by the difficulties that plague others. And maybe even they go through death. And it seems like nothing has troubled them. But there's that, but God. You may think everything is okay. That even in death, it's all right. But God. God will give a day of reckoning. They will face judgment in the life to come, if not in this life. Well, the second point we need to see as we look at those passages is that phrase, but God finds its greatest fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, I read uh, the first 10 verses of, of Ephesians 1. In, in the Greek, it's one sentence. In English, they make it into four or five sentences. It's, it's impossible in English, really, to, to render it completely literally. And so there are lots of phrases at the beginning and clauses at the end and even in the middle. But if you were to remove all that stuff, there's one subject and one verb, one noun, that tell us who's doing something and then what the action is. And you to remove all that, it boils down to, but God made us alive. But God made us alive in Christ Jesus. Now, if you go back in, in verses 1 to 3, it, it talks about those who are spiritually dead. What is like before you become a Christian? disobedient, desperate, sinful desires, a fallen nature, enslaved to sin, objects of wrath. That's a pretty graphic indication of what we are without Christ. Until you come in verse 4 to, but God. That's what you were, but God. And John Stott says, those two monosyllables, but God, set against a desperate condition of fallen mankind, the gracious initiative and sovereign action of God. We are the objects of his wrath, but God, out of the great love with which he loved us, has mercy on us. We were dead, and dead men do not rise, but God made us alive. Back when I was at Purdue, had a couple of friends, a married couple, a recently married couple, and he was in grad school, and, and the wife began to get sick. And the doctors uh, tried to figure out what it was, and she kept getting sicker, and finally they put her in the hospital and ran more tests, and they couldn't find, out, find anything wrong. And as she got sicker, they, they put her in the intensive care unit. And she still kept getting sicker, kept running more tests, couldn't figure out what it was. Until the day came when her heart stopped. 
her brain stopped. At that point, she died. There was nothing she could do for herself. Now, she was in the intensive care unit. So they brought the crash cart and started her heart again, revived her, and she started getting better from that point on. They never figured out what made her sick. But in a few days, she was out of the hospital. A couple of years later, she was having her first baby. But that word dead is used here in Ephesians. This is what we're like spiritually until God intervenes when it comes from outside, but God made us alive. And the scriptures go deeper than that as you would look at Acts 10, 40, and and virtually the same thing is repeated in in 13, 30. Speaking about Jesus Christ, he says, they, the Jewish and Roman leaders, put him to death by hanging him on a tree. You know, talking about the crucifixion. And then we have that phrase, But God, but God raised him from the dead on the third day. God did it. And it points to Jesus' victory over sin, over Satan, and ultimately over death itself. And the way it's described in both those places, but God raised him. It attributes to the direct action of God the Father. We see in Scripture others who were raised. Jesus raised Lazarus to life, the widow of Nain's son, and some others. Paul raised to life. And the Old Testament prophets, but only to have them die again. The Father directly raised the Son. It's unique. It sets apart as a resurrection different from all others, not repeated. I knew a man who thought his mother would be raised that way. She's 85 years old, had lived a long life, but he was convinced that God was going to raise her from the dead after three days. Even told his wife, you need to bring a dress for her. Because the dress they put on her, they have to cut it in the back and stuff to get it on her, and that wouldn't be appropriate when she's walking around raised from the dead. The wife wouldn't do it. But she wasn't raised. The only one we see directly raised is Jesus Christ. And in Romans 1 4, it talks about the resurrection, it declares that Jesus Christ to be the Son of God with power. It points us to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And the third point we need to see is the phrase, but God reveals the heart of God. We see it in Romans 5, 8. 
But God shows his love for us, and while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. The great demonstration, great indication of the depth of God's love is seen in his sacrificial death. Now, the surrounding verses that we read indicate it's unusual that you might die for somebody else. There may be a few instances where a buddy in the army jumps on a hand grenade to save his buddies in a foxhole, or that, you know, one of the Secret Service takes a bullet for the president. But to do it for an enemy. You know, would anybody here take a bullet for Vladimir Putin? You might do it for your wife, for your husband, for your children. But for Putin? We wouldn't think of it. And the Greek is emphasizing the nature of this love. It's God's own love. It's his unique love. This is a demonstration of God's love. And then when we were enemies, when we were cut off, Christ died. It points to a unique and unparalleled love. We can't look around and say, oh yeah, so-and-so shows that kind of love. Because we don't. And notice in verse 8, it's, it's present tense. It's not that it was done... This love was showed once at the cross and never again. But it's an ongoing love that God has for you each and every day that you're one of his children. Think about what that means. If this next week is the worst week of your life as a Christian, and you end the week saying, how did I mess up so badly? God doesn't love you any less. He still has that same love for you. Maybe your week is the best week you've ever had as a Christian. His love for you isn't strengthened. It comes back to who God is. It's a love that he had for us when we're still living in sin, when our minds were blinded by sin, when our hearts were inclined to sin. So it's a unique love, past, present, and future. Psalm forty-nine, fifteen. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. It's really saying to us, ultimately, Despite our past rebellion, our present sins, our future deliberate sins against God, we are received in heaven because God's love in Jesus Christ triumphs. In a few minutes we'll be singing from Psalm 73. And verse 26 says, My flesh and my heart may fail. You know, as you try to live the Christian life, you will fail this week. I will fail this week. We'll all fail. But God, 
There's that phrase again. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. Heaven is not determined by us, by our strength, by our faithfulness, but by the incredible nature of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Let me suggest three applications. First, is that we would be filled with wonder. Think about, meditate on on Romans 5 But God demonstrates his love toward us. And that we're still sinners. In that state of rebellion, Christ died for us. It's unique love. It should cause us to marvel. Second, your security rests on that phrase, but God. It doesn't matter how strong your grip is on God, how good your devotions are this week, how much you put in the offering plate, whether you've been baptized or not, it all comes back to God, to Jesus Christ, his love, but God. And then third, as we be partaking in the Lord's Supper in a couple of weeks, to be remembering in celebrating that love. Every time we gather for Lord's Supper, we're celebrating that fact that God interrupted. God has saved, has redeemed us from destruction. And it's because of that we would come to the table and receive strength and encouragement. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for uh, these portions of scripture that speak of what you've done. And as we would look at our lives, we understand that we are helpless. As sinful men and women, as sinful boys and girls... There's nothing that we can do to please you, to reach up to you. But you have reached down to us. You sent your son and Jesus came willingly to give his life as a ransom for many. When we could not buy our souls and no way redeem our souls, Jesus Christ did it for us. And how we give you praise and thanksgiving for that. Encourage us with this truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Turn please to Psalm 73. Selection C.
Last stanza says, those far from you will surely die who deal with you unfaithfully. But as for me, I will draw near. How good that God is near to me. I refuge take and God the Lord that all your works I may record. Let's stand and sing the three stanzas, Psalm 73C. Mm-hmm. 